morning. It is a joy to be with you, and I'll tell you, it's a special joy to be here when you're giving third and fourth grade Bibles. I brought mine. This is the one I received when I was a third grader, and I used it throughout uh, elementary school, middle school, high school, into college, and I assure you young people that this is from use and not from misuse. I treasure this, the Word of God, as I pray you will as well. It really is a, a joy, a great privilege to be with you at ZPC this morning. You don't know me, but I know you, and I have known you for a great many years, for decades, really. I've been part of a National Prayer Covenant group with Glenn McDonald and Pat Smith. I count them among my closest friends and colleagues. Some of you are familiar with Great Escape, yes? Any Great Escapers? Uh, I have known Chris Malott and some of you lay leaders from ZPC through Great Escape. The church I served in Milwaukee prior to coming to TAB here was called Crossroads. And I'm pretty convinced that there have been some longtime friendships and even some budding romances that came out of uh, those two youth groups at Great Escape. Jerry and Scott have now become great, great friends. You know, I don't quite understand Jerry's sense of humor yet, but um, <laughs> starting to warm up to him. Uh, I hope you know and I trust you appreciate how blessed ZPC is by the pastoral leadership and the staff that you have now and have had through all the years of your ministry here. If you've not expressed your appreciation to Jerry and to Scott and to your staff, if you haven't done it recently, I encourage you to do it as soon as possible and as often as possible. And beyond that, I'd really ask you to keep them in your prayers. You're probably aware ministry is becoming increasingly more difficult in this era than perhaps it has been in our lifetime for a myriad of different reasons. And so every opportunity that you have, let me encourage you just to give them a word of encouragement. And add a girl and add a boy. Thank you for what you're doing. It is um, a challenging time for the church. It's a challenging time for those who lead the church. And so your prayers are essential for the vitality of the body of Christ in this place and in all places where Christ is served. As mentioned, I, I retired this past August having, after having served for 41 years in ministry, these last 15 at TAB. And Jerry mentioned, I have not preached uh, since August 6th, and so I feel a little rusty. I preached once when we were in Western Africa, in Western Kenya, uh, a congregation that looks surprisingly different than... Uh, <laughs> you are now. And so I'll admit to you, I have a little anxiety this morning, uh, not about preaching, but any of you who are retired will know or perhaps understand the anxiety of, will my suit still fit? And do I remember how to tie a tie? So far, so good. 
I'd also like to say to you, I have appreciated how you all are reading through the Gospel of Luke, Lectio Continuum, not, not just jumping from favorite passages to favorite passages, which pastors often have an opportunity to do. But it's really important for us, any of us who are students of the word, to read those passages that are difficult for us to wrestle with, not just the ones we love to return to. So I commend Jerry and Scott, and I certainly commend each of you. And I would hope that you would continue your own study as you make your way through Luke, listening to all that God has to say to us through his word. So with that, let's turn to God's word. If you would read this aloud with me, and it says, then he, so then he, Jesus. Then he said to them, how can they say that the Messiah is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David thus calls him Lord, so how can he be his son? In the hearing of all the people, he said to the disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and who love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation. He looked up and saw rich people putting their gifts into the treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. He said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in all she had to live on. Amen. And let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we would pray now that your word might help to shape and inform and inspire my words. And that my words might help to shape and inform us, your people. This we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let me pose a riddle to you. When is one greater than 72,814? When is one greater than 72,814? Think about that for a moment and we'll come back to it later, I assure you, but we might find some clues and answer to that riddle in our lesson from Luke this morning. To set the stage for our story, Jesus has had a tough day He's nearing the end of his ministry, and already we see that things have started to heat up. And again, if you've been following in Luke, you have felt this coming on. We read at the beginning of chapter 20 that he and his disciples have been on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem all day long. They've been preaching the good news to the people and then debating with the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees. Scott led us through those debates last week, uh, a passage I was glad he had to deal with rather than I today, I assure you. Recall those religious leaders have challenged Jesus' authority to say and do the things that he's been saying and doing. They've sent spies to trip him up on the issues of the day. Uh, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? 
They even got into a debate with him about who would be married to whom in the resurrection, which is kind of ironic because most of them didn't even believe in the resurrection at that point. So it sounds as though Jesus has gotten pretty fed up with these religious leaders as he rebukes them, saying to the people, you know, you just got to watch out for these folks. These are the folks that want the best seats and the places of honor and people to bow before them. They say long prayers. And yet, at the same time, they devour widows' houses, and for the sake of appearances, I tell you, <coughs> excuse me, they will receive the greater condemnation. Yeah, it sounds like Jesus has had just about enough of these religious folks at this point. And so we find him sitting with his disciples on a perimeter of the Temple Mount, and there are simply people watching as people enter in and out of the Temple. I'm going to dip my toe into the text that Jerry's going to preach on next week, and I trust he'll forgive me. Um, if not, I simply won't be invited back again. Um, <laughs> But the temple complex would have been a wonderful place to people watch. I happen to be a great people watcher. This is the place of great religious significance in Jerusalem. It's a high point in Jerusalem. It's the place where King Solomon first built the temple, and then the second temple was built during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah as the children of Israel returned from exile. And now, at this point, King Herod was doing a massive building campaign, expanding the, uh, the mount itself, making it even more elaborate. Last June, a year ago last June, I was in Jerusalem and had an opportunity to visit an underground look at the temple complex. And we saw the foundation stones that held up the temple. Uh, think in terms of the size of a freight car, each one of them. Or I was looking at the, this bank of windows behind me. The foundation stones of the temple are larger than this window complex. And these were um, massive stones, and the disciples were incredibly impressed by what they saw. Remember, the disciples were from Galilee, northern Israel and uh, kind of a backwater region. And so they're impressed by being in the big city of Jerusalem. And now they're, they're on the Temple Mount and they see the temple and they see what Herod is building to expand it. And then their attention is drawn to the people making their offering as they go into the temple to worship. Now the temple coffers were located in what was called the Court of the Women. It was the outer enclosure outside the temple. Thirteen of these uh, coffers, uh, large, shofar-shaped, kind of trumpet-shaped, if you will, chests made of, of bronze or copper, each with a designated purpose. And not only were they able to watch these quote-unquote rich people as they put their offering in, no doubt some of the very religious leaders Jesus has just put a dig into, but they were also able to hear them make their offerings. You see, when they dropped their large coins into these brass containers, 
the size of their gift was announced to everyone around them. Think in terms of the lights and the bells that, that ring when somebody hits the jackpot in a casino. And it drew the disciples' attention. Look at how much they're giving to the temple. That's human nature, isn't it? I mean, isn't that a little bit for all of us, not just them, but us now? We're impressed by size. Size matters. Bigger is better. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. It's human nature to want bigger and better and faster and fancier. We are impressed by buildings and homes and cars and clothes and profiles and portfolios. The disciples were impressed by this extravagant display of beauty and power and pomposity, as are we still today. That is until Jesus points to a widow as she puts in her two small copper coins, as we hear the story. Two lepta, the thinnest of the coins, the the coins of least value, about the size of the fingernail on your little finger, worth one one-hundredth of a denarius, one one-hundredth of a day wage. Think a penny, a penny that is more expensive to make than it is in its worth. I saw a penny on the street yesterday as I walked and didn't bother to pick it up. Jesus points to her as she drops in these two coins, which forever hereafter will be called the widow's mite. And as she drops them into the coffer, no one heard anything. But Jesus takes notice and says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of the rest of them, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. Well, how can that be? How can her meager gift be greater than all of the others? Evidently, Jesus has never tried to support a ministry before. Never tried to pay a staff, never tried to keep the lights on, never tried to meet an operating budget, never tried to fulfill a capital campaign. Mites don't go very far in supporting temple purposes. Building campaigns are not launched, missions are not funded, staffs are not paid, new ministry initiatives are not supported on LEPTA. And so why then did Jesus commend this woman and her meager offering? Perhaps it was because he viewed her and her might from a different perspective than that which can be measured on a profit and loss ledger or on a balance sheet. He viewed her gift not from the perspective of financial heft but of spiritual depth. Apparently she was a woman of few means, that was evident in her, and she donated a portion, a significant portion, all she had to live on as an expression of gratitude, as an act of faith. And so she gave her gift to the temple. Now, Herod would not have been very impressed by the gift she gave that day in his building of his kingdom, but Jesus certainly was in the building of his kingdom. 
And isn't it interesting that 2,000 years later, we're talking about her and her gift and not any of the others and the size of the gifts they gave. You know, I've been thinking this week that there is a difference between being impressed and being inspired. We are impressed when we see what someone else is or has or has done, but when we, but we are inspired when we are moved to do or be or become something better of ourselves. It's human nature to be impressed, to be enamored by size and stature and status, but we grow and make changes when we are inspired by acts of service and sacrifice, by a generosity born of gratitude. Being impressed speaks to the values of the kingdoms of this world. Being inspired speaks to the values of the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, I'll admit to you, I, like you, am impressed and enamored by size and heft of the stuff of this world. Early in December, my wife Kristen and I were in Washington, D.C., one of my favorite, favorite cities. While she was busy at a conference, I had three days just to walk around and take in the Capitol building and the White House and the monuments and the museums. I absolutely loved it. And I will confess that like the disciples. I am duly impressed by those displays of power and prominence. And I find myself looking at these structures and saying, wow, look what they have done. But then in January, I visited a ministry to orphaned and vulnerable children that we have supported for a long time in Western Kenya. I sat with a mother and her young children in a meager mud hut, asking them if they had eaten breakfast that day. They said no. Would you have dinner this evening? The mother said, only if God provides. But that same woman, as she welcomed us into her home, offered us something to eat and drink as her honored guests. Now, of course, we declined, knowing she had nothing to serve us but we appreciated the hospitality she extended to us. She offered us her might. Now, I confess to being impressed and enamored by stuff, but I am humbled and inspired by acts of service and sympathy and sacrifice, by acts of generosity born of gratitude, and I find myself then saying, I want to be more like her. So if we view this woman at the temple's gift and action purely from the perspective of financial worth, her gift was inconsequential at best. It was even life-threatening at worst, or at least utterly foolish, if this really was all she had to live on. But viewed from a perspective of faith and of faithfulness, it was the most generous gift that she could be given. She wanted to be a part of what God was doing, and she wanted to do that through the work of the temple. 
Yet another example that the, in the economy of heaven, things are valued differently. Jesus uses this woman's gift to demonstrate something of that upside down nature of the kingdom of God, where the first are last and the last are first and the proud are brought down and the humble are lifted up. That which made no difference in the books of the treasury that day became written into the book of life as Jesus was looking not at the size of her gift, but at the attitude of her heart, at the cost to the giver, not at the size of her check, but the gift of her own life, of her livelihood to the work of the Lord. And so we're given another clue to this riddle of when is one greater than 72,814? So all of this begs the question for you and for me, questions we should be asking of ourselves of how are we to place a value on the worth or the greatness of our giving? I think it's kind of ironic that this story is often used during stewardship season or in the midst of a capital campaign, because at face value, it would seem to suggest, you know, if you give just a little bit, you're gonna get the greater honor. That's not the message at all, hardly a motivator to make budgets or to build buildings. So through what lens, from what perspective, by what standard do we measure our generosity? Purely in financial terms or are we also able to attribute a faith factor to it? Clearly, both perspectives, head and heart, need to be at play here, but if our giving to the church or to other kingdom activities are to be considered acts of discipleship and not just an act of philanthropy, we must admit, then, that both head and heart need to be involved in our decisions. We must admit that we who have much and we do. We who can give much know that we can also give much without be, with it being totally void of any faith, much less any measure of sacrifice. There are some among us who I would imagine could give great sums and never really miss it at all if it's just a matter of moving a decimal point or two or taking off a zero from one of our accounts into another. So there's clearly something more to be measured in our giving than the numerical size of our gift. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, in what ways does our giving, and I would expand that to say, it, it, does our living then reflect the depth of our faith, the measure of our gratitude to God for all he has done for us? our desire to be part of what God is doing in the church and through the church into the world. While this story is clearly an instruction directed to the rich, it also addresses those who think they have little or nothing to give. I've known individuals through the years who have faithfully put $1 bills, $2, into an offering plate an offering envelope and put it in the plate each week in worship. So the Talmud teaches even the beggar living on alms can be charitable. Clearly Jesus is making a point here that rich or poor by the world's standards, the greatness of our giving has far more to do with faith than it does with finances, with discipleship than it does with our dollars. It's a matter of the heart 
more than a measure of our means. So this acted out, teachable moment addresses issues of our greed and our generosity. It poses questions which each of us should be asking of ourselves. Given all that I have, how much is enough? And to what do I look for to for my sense of security? Given all that I have been given, how much of myself should I give? Myself, my stuff, my time, my talent, my treasure. And perhaps most importantly, who am I trying to please? Who am I trying to impress in my giving and in my living? Issues each of us should be wrestling with. Somehow, though, these varying standards of measurement must be kept in conversation with one another, I know. Our heads and our hearts, our desire to give significantly and to grow spiritually. And that's why I believe Jesus talked so much about money and possessions, because he knew what a stranglehold they can have on us, and he recognized that we don't have a very clear way of measuring our value or our worth or the importance of what we do, at least in, a, in an eternal or spiritual sense. We turn to the tangibles in our lives, the things that we can measure, and look to those for our sense of security, when in fact they really can't give us that security at all. We tally up our bank accounts and we think we're fine without much consideration for the spiritual perspective that we may indeed be bankrupt. Remember the teaching in Revelation, the church at Laodicea said, I'm rich, I've prospered, I have no need of God. And Jesus says to them, you are poor and blind and naked. What if the things I value most are in fact the things that are keeping me from growing in my relationship with God? What's the gain in that? We have such a skewed perspective on our stuff. And so once again, we're given yet another clue to the riddle. When is one greater than 72,814? It seems clear that Jesus is using this teaching to underscore that it's not the size of the gift that matters. The greatness of the gift is not measured by how much goes in the plate, not by how much noise it makes or the attention it garners. He doesn't romanticize the small gift, nor does he belittle or, or give undue honor to the large. Rather, he seems to measure all gifts by the same standard. What is the attitude and intention of the giver? The measurement then is made not in financial terms, be it more or less, but in spiritual terms. What's the level of sacrifice and commitment? Certainly a worthy consideration as we enter into this season of Lent, as we consider the sacrifice and commitment of our Lord for us and for our salvation. Given all that we have been given, what then shall we give? How then shall we live that would bring him honor and glory? Like Jesus and the disciples that day on the mount, the riddle, when is one greater than 72,814, came out of my own experience. 
One morning during worship, I saw the ushers as they stood at the back door of the sanctuary, readying themselves to come down to take the morning offering. Plates in hand, the door right behind them opened, and I watched as a gentleman came in off the street, disheveled, clearly dirty, had been perhaps on the street during the night. I watched as one of the ushers put down her offering plate, moved towards him, offered him a bulletin and a place to sit, but in turn, I saw him turn around after a brief exchange and walk out of the door again. After worship, I went and found the usher and said, what, what was going on with that? And she said, well, I welcomed him and offered to find him a seat, but instead he said, I just want to say thank you for all you do here, and handed her a $1 bill and turned around and walked out the door. That morning, we received $19,451 in the offering plate. We also received a check from a bequest of a longtime member who remembered us in her will, totaling $53,362. So our deposit in the bank that week was $72,814. You know, we can be easily impressed and enamored by the size and status and stature around us. But we are inspired by acts of humble service and sacrifice, by generosity born of gratitude. And that day, I assure you, one was greater than any amount that might otherwise have been given. Amen. And let us pray. Lord, we thank you, the graciousness of your gift to us the gift of your love, your grace, your mercy, the firm foundation of which we have spoken and sung. We thank you, O Lord, for the gift of salvation and help us, O Lord, not to take any of it for granted, but rather to live in it and into it in a way that brings honor and glory to you. Lord, seal into our hearts any truths that we have spoken of this day, that we may live to your glory. This we pray through Christ our Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. Amen.